Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. You're a, an economist who really likes to talk about economic growth, don't you? Mm, oh, I love economic growth. And I know, I thought you might have been thinking about, about this because we're, we're going to be interviewing Dick Smith soon. And Dick Smith, of course, is the famous Dick Smith. Um, Australian Geographic, Dick Smith. Well, uh, the, the, Dick Smith food or uh, electrical no, store? retail, electrical stores before yeah, was, yeah. Uh, food. And the, the, there's only one Dick Smith and, and, and Dick has been on and on about population growth for some time. He's terrorised many a Prime Minister on the subject and everyone seems to ignore him. So Dick's going to tell us why he thinks Australia has to cut back on its population. Well, he's now terrorising the uh, ScoMo government with yeah. a whole lot of ads that have been launched. But look, it's uh, I think the argument against Dick is, of course, uh, we all we do want economic growth and population's a key driver of that. So much so yeah. that, you know, if you look at now, you know, some of the people are talking about, um, what's the word, not real growth, but they're talking about... Uh, growth when you adjust for take out the population part yeah, and it yeah. sometimes hasn't statistically doesn't seem to be going forward so yeah. the yeah but that's to me that's like to, let's have growth without exports yeah right? so we just get the domestically and it's going to be smaller yeah, population is a like in a sense paul if you've got a country that's really attractive and it attracts people and it gives you growth it's just like any other thing if you attract to investment you get growth it's just a different form well, you'll be able to hear what Dick's got to say because, yeah. uh, you know, if you're going to cut down on population growth, you've really got to cut down the immigration target. Yeah. And that's um, and even lower your expectations about what this country can deliver in terms of jobs and all those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, well. so it has impact. And I'm, I'm not sure the answer that obviously the – I think certain politicians, a lot of nationals like to – national party members like to say, let's suddenly put all the population in regional Australia. Yeah. but. Let's, I'm not sure there's actually the jobs out there for yeah. regional Australia. Let's for. fill up Wallabadar with a whole bunch of people from Afghanistan. Yeah, something like <laughs> that. That would work. <laughs> but it's a money issue uh, because that does impact all of us. Uh, yeah, and obviously good a topic. Huge, there's a huge cost with population growth. Just look at the, the money that's being invested in infrastructure in the cities just mm. to keep up with demand through more population, more housing growth. Yep, so that's Dick Smith and Jenny Gibson from uh, Gibson Auctions. Uh, we're going to be talking about... How do you actually make money the smart way? Uh, Jenny's been on the on the cutting edge of auctions for a long time, and you and I aren't art experts when it art art experts when it comes to investing in art. So, well, I hung up a picture yesterday, Peter. Did you? Well, no, indeed, but I was going to refuse to pay someone else to do it. <laughs> refuse to pay someone else to do it. You know, yep. saved a couple of a couple yeah. of cents that way. Yeah. Uh, have do you have, do you collect art? No, I don't, but I watched my wife do it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you're more in really likes it. And, yeah, I go along for the ride. And invariably, yeah. Now, I used to hang out until she always reckoned it looked crooked. So I get some bloke to come in and do it. And they're very good at it, I guess. Well, what does look uh, pretty attractive with art, obviously, not the, apart from the art itself, is mm. that the stats do show that as an investment, yep. and we're generalising here, of course, yeah. it's very much picture by picture, but uh, when you look at the art 
the value of art is in itself and look at what happens to it over time, it is yeah. a pretty good returning asset. Yeah. If you buy good quality, it's like buying good quality assets, you buy good quality artists uh, either on the way up or already there. But the interesting thing I've found, Paul, over the years, do you remember when Deloitte, um, no, no, it was just called Access Economics in those days, and they used to do like an asset um, inventory mm-hmm. and they even looked at thoroughbred racehorses and how, how they became more valuable over time and they looked at wine and they looked at art and all those sort of things. You know, if you buy when everyone's selling, it's, you can really do well out of art. So if you you know the artist is very good, and it's a time when everyone's really worried. You know, like for example, the GFC was a perfect time to buy art mm. because everyone was just pe- petrified and people were dumping assets. So I think I believe if you're going to buy those sort of things, buying them during downturns can be really good, like most assets, I guess. And finally, we have Tom Ravlik. Now, uh, Tom has written a book called – it's a great title, Paul – Vulture City, how our bankers got rich on swindles. Now you were a banker. No, I thought you'd, I thought you'd leave with that. I, I, I did. Did agree. you get rich on swindles, Paul? <laughs> I did like the title there, Vulture City. I mean, like, that's uh, that, that's enough almost to buy it, Peter. I, I, exactly. I'm not sure our bankers got rich on too many swindles, but I'm sure that uh, like all industries, we uh, needed the Hain Royal Commission yeah. and. Uh, there were some unsavoury practices uh, that it discovered, which needed to be exposed. Yeah. So that's that's an upside of uh, yeah. of that process. Yeah, and they were ignored by, not only by the, the the people who led the banks, but by politicians in mm-hmm. the past, uh, and also uh, and also the regulators. So it'll be interesting to see what Tom has dug up in his book Vulture City. All right, so that's the show for uh, today. Let's kick off and talk to the one and only Dick Smith. So Dick, thanks for joining us on the program. It's a pleasure. So, Dick, let me put it this way. You and I, we've talked over the years, but it's a new Prime Minister and you're giving him your population worry argument. For people who've never heard it before, in a nutshell, what are your prime concerns? Well, my my nutshell is quite simple, that there's always a sweet point with everything. If you're a farmer, you know just how many cattle you can stock on a certain acreage, and it's the same with countries. And I think in Australia, the sweet point for population is about now, and if we keep increasing it, I think we'll end up with more and more people getting less and less, and I don't think that's a good idea. What have governments said to you in the past? Because you've had a lot of governments to talk to in recent times. Absolutely. Basically, they don't know how to answer it. Eight out of 10 Australians are concerned about our enormous population growth. We're the third highest in the developed world and the present growth of 1.6% per year, mainly coming from record immigration. That will result in 100 million people being in Australia at the end of this century when our grandkids will be alive. And no one believes that 100 million is sensible for an arid country like Australia. Dick, you've said most of the population growth is due to immigration. Uh, a lot of that immigration is sort of family-based, uh, you know, so the arguments, they seem to be pretty strong voices in the community um, who want to get relatives and friends back into Australia. What do you say to those people that are desperate to bring their, their family into Australia and, and you're arguing, well, we really need to cut immigration? 
Yeah, I'm pro-immigration, and if we brought it back to the long-term average of 75,000 per year, at the moment it's about 190,000. If we brought it back to 75,000, that would be plenty of numbers for family reunions. You're just not going to have the enormous growth. And most of the people I talk to are immigrants. They don't want – they've come to this country because it's uh, such a fantastic country with a small population, large area of land, even though most of it's arid, and they don't want it changed. So eight out of ten Aussies reckon we should have a population plan and we shouldn't just grow forever. Dick, one thing, you know, you, you're a guy who's in the, the retail space, or certainly you have been, when you reduce your population, ultimately you reduce the number of people who want to eat, you know, Dick Smith's Vegemite and, and whatever. Excuse me if I'm, if I'm not getting the right products nowadays, but, but that, that's an important consideration as well. A lot of business people do like the idea that the market is growing. What do you say to that sort of person? Oh, well, Peter, you're absolutely right. This is the problem. Our whole economic system, the one that I've benefited from so tremendously, is a giant Ponzi scheme because it needs it needs eternal growth to operate. If you stop growth with capitalism, and I mean growth by digging more and more out of the ground, producing more and having more consumerism and more people, if you stop that, the whole damn system will collapse. And that's the problem. And that's why no politician supports me. Even the Greens don't have a population policy because everyone knows that the system will collapse. And what do you say to the people that say, look, look, we understand the population challenges in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, but there are parts of regional Australia that are allegedly just crying out for more people. Why can't we? Um, why can't we have a population policy that still has high numbers of immigration, but somehow we get people to perhaps where they need to be? just not possible. See, with robotics and automation, the farmers need less staff, not more. Right. And most of these country towns where people say you should go, there's no jobs there now. And so there'll never be lots more jobs in country areas because costs are so high now to employ labour. Everyone who owns a farm will be doing everything they can to make sure they have more automation and less people working there. So what would you like to see as the, as the right level of population growth in Australia? Yeah, I'd like to see a plan where we decide to stabilise our population at about 30 million. That would mean we'd have to go down to 75,000 per year. I think we could increase our humanitarian intake to 20,000, but that would be in that 70 or 75,000. And I think to stabilise the population is a good idea. Countries like Japan are actually reducing population. They've got 120 million at the moment. By the end of this century, they'll have about 90 million. Germany, Italy, they're all countries that are basically stable or reducing their population. And that's sensible because you just can't have more and more people. It's impossible. Uh, now, Dick, in the good old days before Twitter and social media, someone like you could have a view like this and, and people say, oh, well, you know, Dick's got his, his point of view and it's, it's based on in, intelligent and rational you know, analysis. But nowadays, there's a lot of calling out if people don't like what you say. Have you been a victim of Twitter and, and other social platforms for having this point of view? No, surprisingly enough, just about everyone agrees with me. I mean, I do get abuse saying, oh, Dick, you've, you've benefited from growth and now you're against it. Well, yes, I have benefited from growth and the only reason I'm concerned about it is for my grandchildren's sake because it's simply impossible. Look at the incredible water shortages in Sydney we have. No one has linked it to the fact that when they built Warragamba Dam, we had about 2 million in Sydney. We now have 4 million. We've doubled the population and that means you use double as much water. The Murray and 
and Darling rivers are running out of water because we're pumping more and more from them because we have twice or three times as many people. So, so what has been the best argument that you've had to counter and how did you counter that argument? Well, the best argument, first of all, I say that every Aussie family has a population plan. They can have 20 children during their lifetime. None do. Parents decide what would be a good number that we can give a good life to. And some people have four or five. Other people have one or two or none. Now, that's what we should do as a country. We should decide on an optimum number. But there is absolutely no plan at the present time. Every politician, every major party, even the Greens, just spruik endless growth but it's impossible. I can tell you it is a Ponzi scheme. They'll tell you we need the growth now to pay for the old age because we've got an aging population. Well, that just puts off the day and makes it worse. You have more older people that you have to somehow get even more immigrants to pay taxes, and in the end, you can never catch up. Okay, so who is the relevant minister that you're harassing nowadays with all, with all this <laughs> stuff? <laughs> you know what? There is a minister for population. I can't even remember his name because... <laughs> Uh, he is completely useless. See, no politician, I'll, I'll say again, our system of capitalism that I've benefited from so much has had 150 years of unbelievable growth because of cheap fossil fuels. Now, it's a, there's a problem. It's a finite world. You can't always grow. And sometime we've got to get a leader who says, look, I'm going to move to a different form of growth, not more and more people, but uh, growth in efficiencies to, to increase profits, growth in removing waste. They're a lot harder to do. All the capitalists at the moment just want huge immigration because that gives you this false type of growth. In fact, other than the billionaires who have doubled their wealth in the last five years, most typical Australians have gone slightly backwards when it comes to the income they get compared to the uh, price of living, the cost of living. So what has Alan Jones said to your point of view? He doesn't always agree with you, Dick, does he? He totally agrees with me on this. No, it's interesting. Alan has a different view to me on climate change. I think we are probably affecting the climate. I don't know for sure. But he certainly agrees with me incredibly strongly, as most people do, that the fantastic thing about this country is the fact that we've got not a huge population in large areas. Look, it, it, you, could, you could fit 100 million into Australia, but it will mean probably 30 million incredibly poor. Look at the United States. They have 330 million. They've clearly gone past the sweet point. They have 30 million people on the dole or on food stamps. Mm. That's because there's not enough wealth to, to share it around with 330 million people. All right, Dick, if people want to get know more about your extensive views on population, where do they go? Well, they could look on the, uh, the Dick Smith Fair Go site. I've got a bit there, and I'll be running some new ads, which I, I put at the bottom of the ad, they're a complete waste of time because, <laughs> look, the, pro the problem is that most people listening to me now will probably be saying, oh, gee, that's pretty logical what Dick's saying, mm. but it's going to be incredibly difficult to change to a different form of growth, and that's only going to happen when it's forced on us, and I think you'll find we're getting close to the day of reckoning. A lot of people are predicting a major economic collapse, and that's when we'll have to learn to live without this perpetual growth. Okay, well, certainly, uh, I reckon that um, the free-to-air TV could do with a bit of advertising dollars, mate, to keep them going, going as well well. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> Dick, thanks for joining us on the program. Great to talk to you, Peter. Great to talk to you, Paul. Really thanks, fantastic. Thanks, Dick.
Join us at the Switzer Small and Microcap Investor Day in Sydney on December 3rd, where we'll be giving investors access and insights to ASX-listed small and microcap companies. Now, Paul, this is our first time we've mm. ever done this, and we're basically we've got a group of small cap companies, and what the CEO comes out and just basically tells us why the company's so good and why it's got a future. And, yeah, and in a nice way, why you might like to think about investing. But, of course, they can't actually say that per no. se. But, look, I think... It's, it's a show and tell. It's a it show and tell. show and tell. And there are... You know, we talk a lot about the big companies on this and other programs. The yep. small companies don't get a lot of coverage. No. We've actually got a really... I had a look at the list, Peter. A really good l- l- list of CEOs and companies yeah. on display. And... Uh, Opportunity for them to present, but also for you to ask questions. So if you've uh, if you've been thinking about some small caps, or mm. you look at our list and you say, "Look, yep, I, I, I think that company's you know in an mm. interesting area. I'd like the potentially the tailwinds for the industry. What's what it's trying to do? Is this the right thing to invest in? And does the, is the team really are they on top of their game? Mm. You come along and ask the questions. Yeah. Put put them on the spot. Yeah, and I got to say, I'm. I like a company, Clean Seas. That's a, mm. a really interesting co- company. Um, and I'm obviously, well, it's not advice, of course, but I think they're heading in the right direction. It'd be very interesting because they're attending as well. Well, they're in the whole aquaculture, aqua yeah. I think. And yeah. that's, a, that's a big area, particularly for not just in Tasmania, but there's a lot of, a, a lot of money. Mm. Well, they're, they're in, they're in uh, Port Lincoln. Port Lincoln, yeah, yeah, going into that, yeah. yeah. Okay, so the attenders will be able to hear from company CEOs and you'll be able to ask different questions. The day will be made up of 15-minute sessions from the CEOs of a range of small and micro-cap companies. Uh, there'll be um, a morning tea and, and a lunch and all that sort of stuff as, as usual. If you want to come along, you can get your tickets today. It's in Sydney, of course, um, uh, but next year we'll probably take it right around the country. Uh, you just go to switzerevents.com.au and the date is December 3rd. Well, I've got to say, um, I'm always interested in learning more about stuff we can make money, Paul. And, and art, as you made a, a point earlier in the program, is a place where you can do it. Like most things, you need some expertise. And to get that, we're going to talk to Jenny Gibson, and Jenny Gibson comes from Gibson's Auctions. Jenny, welcome to the program. Nice to be here, Peter. All right, so Jenny, tell us about what people need to know when they think they want to invest in art. Well, there's, there's quite a range of things that I think you need to consider, Peter. Um, one of the first things is the reason, well, obviously you need to know the reason you're buying it. So there's lots of reasons you buy art and you buy decorative art. You buy it because you love it, you buy it because you're a collector, you buy it for investment. Um, you buy it because you want to keep it in the house, put it in the house, see it every day mm. and live with it. Mm. Yeah. I, I've got to say, a very good friend of mine who I know you would know and he's passed away, he had so much beautiful art um, uh, and he had it in super fun, but he had it on his walls. And this was probably four or five years ago and he assured me that he had bubble wrap at the door in case the tax man ever came and he would wrap <laughs> he would wrap, he thought it was a, this was a defence policy that he could wrap it up and he would pass the stringent test on art and super funds uh, uh, poor old Richard is no longer with us <laughs> right you, that, that's the thing isn't it you've got to keep it off site so yeah. um, that, I suppose that's one of the difficulties with the investment side of it is mm. that the, yes, the ATO laws do state that you must you must off site yeah. uh, and not necessarily in the family home, but then how do you enjoy it? That's so right. yes, he, he he was on the right track there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. So Jenny, let's just talk about: can you be a collector and enjoy it at the same time? 
Do you think those things, it's right to mix the two things together? Well, I think it's essential, uh, you know, to be honest. I, I think one of, the, one of the things about most collectors that I've ever met and, and come across, uh, and of course I've come across many, many, many in my 25 years as an auctioneer and evaluer, um, is that invariably the two are interlinked. You know, right. you, you, 90% of the time you can't have one without the other. So, Yeah. And, look, and I think Paul's very strange question ignores the fact that he loves cars and I can imagine he could easily invest in a very expensive old car. He would collect it and he would watch it and enjoy it, wouldn't you? Admit it. Well, I don't know if I'd call it investing, Peter, but I might actually spend some money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you can see, Paul used to be a banker, so he has a really tough uh, definition of investing. But it, but it brings up a really good point, Jenny. Some people do go and buy artwork, either from dealerships or from auctions, and they think it's going to be a, a good investment. Does it take a long time for a, a, a normal retail buyer to see their artwork, on average, become a good investment? Look, obviously there is a period of time uh, that, that's recommended. You know, um, if you're buying fairly high-end art from, um, you know, the upper range, then certainly... The, the generally expected time frame that you're going to hang on to it is at least five years. Um, I think that's the case with most investments, uh, Peter. You know that um, you know if you buy shares, they say you know minimum two to three years. Obviously, unless there's a run on the market, um, real estate it's similar, um, and certainly with art, I would say that, that your minimum time frame yes is, is five years. Yeah. Okay. Is there also cycles? Like uh, personally, as an investor, I love to buy when everyone's selling. And does the same kind of thing happen in art that there are periods where, say, for example, stockbrokers' bonuses are massive and therefore art prices reflect that kind of thing? That that does happen. It probably doesn't necessarily reflect so much in the market, although obviously prices go up as, as the stock market go up, goes up as, uh, as economic circumstances improve, mm. um, you know, because we are uh, what we, I think, all will agree, a uh, discretionary income buy. So to mm. a certain extent, um, the other two investing uh, categories come first, which of course is real estate, stocks and bonds, um, and then art will, will follow on in terms of a purchase for, for most collectors and investors. So you, that's to be considered as well, I guess, in the mix. And Jenny, what about the buying process, the, the advantages and disadvantages of buying from a collector or buying from a gallery or, for example, buying it at auction? What do you, uh, what, what do you advise and counsel people there? Sure. So, obviously, auction is a, is a tried and true and tested way to purchase. One of the good things about buying from a reputable auction is that the provenance information is correct. Uh, the price estimate, maybe not necessarily the price that the uh, the piece hammers down at or ends up at, is usually slightly lower than you're going to have to pay retail. So, of course, that's an alluring aspect of the buy at auction. Um, so, obviously, a price point is, is a fairly important um, factor when buyers are in the market and they're looking to buy. Um, obviously, if you're buying from a retailer, it's it's an immediate purchase. You don't have to wait for the auction. You don't have to compete with anyone. You can simply buy from the retailer. So there's there's quite a few differences between a retail purchase from a gallery and and buying at auction. Okay, so I, uh, because I, I always like to think I'm getting a great deal, Jenny. I'm strange like that. Um, <laughs> You're not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> right. So if, if I if I go to a, an art auction, I I would presume, 
and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and that's why I'm asking the question, I would presume that I'm competing against other enthusiasts like myself, as well as uh, people who might own art galleries and are really interested in the piece. And there's a consequence I would have thought an auction, I might get it at a, a seriously better price than if the person who actually wins the auction and owns a, a gallery then puts it up in his or her gallery with a markup. Is this right thinking or is it kind of like the, the guesswork of an amateur like me? Well, no, to a certain extent you're correct and, and absolutely correct too. And I've said this quite often. So there's not such a trend these days for people to actually attend auctions. Um, you know, there's so many different ways you can bid at an auction. You can bid live in the room. You can bid online. You can bid by phone. You can bid by absentee bid. But uh, a lot of clients will sometimes ask me, and I don't give out any details, obviously, but if they're in the room and they see a known dealer bidding, uh, and let's say the known dealer is the underbidder, and the client wins um, the lot, if you like, or the artwork, then you, yes, as a general rule, you could pretty much guarantee that the dealer is certainly going to put a markup for the sale on that uh, that particular artwork, mm. um, you know, to obviously make a profit and resell it. So, no, that's that's absolutely correct. And, and what typically are the sort of markups that a dealer might have and what would a seller pay at an auction to uh, in terms of a transaction fee? Mm. Sure. So, uh, so for a seller selling at auction, um, the standard, I think the industry standard is usually somewhere between 15 and 20% and that varies across auction rooms. Um, as and a purchaser, that's, that's paid by the seller? Yeah. That's paid by the, yes, that's paid yep. by the seller. They pay what they call a vendor commission. Mm-hmm. Mm. So obviously that's the deduction by the, the auction house for the process of handling, photographing, promoting, marketing, mm. uh, printing in both hard copy and soft copy catalogues. Um, and putting it out to a huge range of buyers in the market in, in order to expose it to the maximum number of prospective purchasers and get the best price. Mm. And and in, when it's sold privately or sold um, uh, through a gallery, what are the uh, obviously the markups change? I guess with depending on the piece of art, but is there sort of something standard standard that you sort of factor into that equation? Well, it's, I mean, a dealer it varies, of course, but but dealers, uh, I, I think dealers. You know, most likely we'll put anywhere between, I'd say, twenty percent and up to another fifty percent on top of of the purchase price, and that's obviously to you know to obviously make their profit, turn the lights on, keep the gallery running, and those sorts of things. But then it's an immediate purchase. So what you get when you go to a gallery is immediate gratification. Yeah, you, you can literally walk in, see the artwork, and buy it. Yeah. So sounds like mm. the sort of thing a man would like to do: go in, buy, <laughs> walk out. <laughs> Yeah, we shop like sharks, don't we? <laughs> One final thing. Uh, in the spring series, you had some you know, interesting work from China and Japan. Has that already gone ahead or is it still um, up for uh, – is the auction lying ahead for this one? No, no, no. Well, the auction was um, early uh, – it was actually last week, so at yeah. the beginning of last week. And we have now gone for that sale has now uh, pushed through and yeah. – I'm very happy to say that it was successful. So. Yeah, it sounds very interesting, mm. particularly the Japanese ma- Meiji period or Meiji. I've always said Meiji. Yes, Meiji period. Yeah, Meiji. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, mm. we love love seeing that. Finally, Jenny, where can people find out more about Gibson's auctions? Well, we're certainly online. All they have to do is, is Google us as Gibson's Auctions, and that's probably the best way. Mm. They can come in and see us at um, at eight eight five to eight eight nine High Street. In 
and uh, they can contact high, us via email. There are about five million high streets in the world, Jenny. <laughs> which 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 high street we're we looking for? High Street, Armadale. Yeah, I thought so. I, I always forget to say that. It's humour. Well, yeah, you, uh, yeah, we we have a place in Hawkesburn, and I know people in Armadale. They don't think anything else exists outside Armadale. We, we should say Armadale <laughs> in Melbourne, shouldn't we? That's, yeah, we should, that's just right. for that. Yeah, not Armadale, that's Northern right, New South Wales. Yes, Armadale in Melbourne. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. All right, Jenny. Thanks for co- uh, coming on the program. That's a pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Well, Paul, it is an ad I like to do. It's an ad for our business. And did you know that we publish seven free newsletters every week covering the most important financial, business and political news and how it affects you? Did you know that was seven? Look, I I did know it was very close to seven, Peter. I might have only counted six. You're a numbers guy. I'm a numbers guy. But I suppose the question is, what do we talk about? Yeah, well, the, the Switzerland Daily newsletter is sent out every week day morning, plus weekend Switzer on Saturday mornings, and our best stories of the week in the Switzer Weekly on Thursdays. And, you know, I do a story every day where I try to decode some of the complicated stories. I also try to find stuff that normal people just don't get because I, I read abnormal sort of stuff, you know. You I, are an abnormal sort of person. Yeah, 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 that's right. And I realised there was a good way to make money because if everybody's normal and you just find the abnormal areas that people are interested in, yeah, you actually can make a nice living out of it. So abnormality was my competitive advantage. And by the way, you're hardly Mr. Normal yourself, by the way. Well, look, I look forward to reading your <laughs> brilliant piece every day. Yes. Fact, seven, not seven days a week. We do seven editions, six days a week, Monday, yeah. Monday to Sunday. Yeah, yeah. You get Sunday off. Mm, I do get uh, Sunday off. And <laughs> usually right for Monday, so Monday's not as bad because I'm doing podcasts on Monday and stuff like that. Okay, so basically, if you want to sign up, and it doesn't cost you anything because it's free, go to switzer.com.au. Click on the orange subscribe button at the top of the page. Why do we call it subscribe when you don't actually pay anything? Yeah. I mean, I think we need to take that back to... Yeah. Is it such a word as free-scribe? If not, we should should start it. it. Free-scribe. In the age of digital disruption, they're actually disrupting the English language. I reckon that must put people off. There's freemium now. Freemium. (laughs) What the hell's... You pay for a premium. That's freemium. So let's go for a a free-scribe button. Yeah, okay. So switzer.com.au. And by the way, it's not always as madcap as this ad. A new book out by journalist and author Tom Ravlick called Vulture City, How Our Bankers Got Rich on Swindles, uh, is bound to be interesting reading over Christmas for those people who love to not love banks. Tom, thanks for joining us on the program. Not a problem, Peter. It's absolutely wonderful to be here. Okay, Tom, so tell us what the guts of the book is about. Ultimately, the book is about the behavioural aspects of, of banks and how bankers have behaved over more than a decade. Uh, unlike some of the other books, Peter, what I've done is picked up the narrative from around about 2008-2009 with the collapse of Oaks Prime mm-hmm. and Storm Financial, and I've tracked the developments from that period up until now and also looked at the fact that Human behaviour doesn't change, and readers will find uh, that there are a couple of things I mentioned early on in the book about the way regulators ought to treat in order to treat the space, mm. look at banks more uh, carefully, and look at how uh, 
people behave and monitor monitor behaviour. Ultimately, it's about vigilance and risk management. Okay, Tom, give us a classic example of a swindle that you think has been perpetrated by lots of banks and, and therefore needs to be looked at. I think one of the biggest ones that came out during the Hainbrook Commission is the bank staffer or the referrer of business who failed to be an honest broker with both the person seeking a loan and also the institution itself. What we saw with the NAB introduced scandal, for example, was a situation where there was somebody benefiting from getting a loan approved in financial terms, that is, they were getting a kickback or a commission or a bonus. Whatever you call it, they were getting a financial gain out of getting a loan approved. In certain circumstances, what was going on was the paperwork was misleading. In other words, the borrower's circumstances were mischaracterised and the bank ended up not only approving a loan that it should not have, but also paid somebody kickbacks who was in no way deserving of receiving those funds. So, Tom, and you... then I think that I think is one of those situations that where banks need to improve and strengthen their internal controls over time. But Tom, we um, we haven't seen a big pickup in default. So, I mean, I guess the, the I understand the, about the lack of disclosure about secret commissions and other things, which mm. uh, I don't think anyone yep. wants to see, but. Did the, as a result of this, though, did the borrowers really suffer that much? I think those people that are affected by it, those people who end up not being able to pay loan, um, end up being the ones that do suffer and they need to negotiate their way out of it. One of the things that disappointed me in observing the Hainbrook Commission was that it took so long for some people to work their way through that process with the bank. My guess is that the consumer ended up in a situation where they couldn't pay the loan, they weren't aware of the documentation that was filed on their behalf, the bank believed the documentation that was filed uh, in order for the purposes of loan approval, and it took a while for people to excavate themselves. Your gut feel is right, we're probably not seeing a huge amount of it, but the circumstances in which it did occur were not pretty. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you've called the book Vulture City. I just want to sort of amplify on the title and um, why yeah, you chose I'm that. Quite, I'm quite happy to. In fact, one of, the, one of the interesting things is the reaction of some of my older uh, friends in the accounting world who I've known for in excess of two decades. And the first thing that I was asked by a few people was, why did you pick that? And the reason was this. The word vulture is used in a couple of contexts. Obviously, from uh, from the animal kingdom, you've got the bird itself that that circles and hones in on the vulnerable vulnerable sort of creature, the, the, the carcass, if you like. So there's a praying element to it, but also vulture is used in the context of a rapacious individual. Right. So as okay. we work our way through, work our way through the Hainbrook Commission, 
what we saw was people who were actively using the KPIs that the company had set in order to benefit themselves. And, and that is part of why we ended up with a title uh, called Vulture City. And Tom, Tom, when you look at you know the, the range of things that you covered in the book, do you argue that that the regulator has a role to play in not nipping in the bud stuff that people like you, myself and Paul have known has been going on, particularly in wealth management, and nothing was done. Government um, you know, ministers weren't pushing, ASIC wasn't tough enough, um, and, and APRA as well, I guess, to a, to a, to a certain degree. All of this, do you cover this kind of letting down of the consumer and, and business? Absolutely, absolutely. In the chapter two of the readers who pick up the book, we'll see the, my, a bit of a narrative analysis of the, the breakdown of trust, but also the very fact that this has been something that authors have written about for a very long time, Peter. It's not as if, it, it's not as if uh, people's poor behaviour to their fellow man is anything novel or new. Mm. Uh, there's a book from 1907 that, that talks about sins in society that I cite in Vulture City. Mm. And at that point in time, we were starting to see the emergence of what you call, what you might call that school of criminology that looks at white-collar crime, you know, the attitudes that developed in, in people who were... Uh, sophisticated, more sophisticated than the customer who are providing services and capable of misleading uh, individuals that they were providing services to. Uh, more specifically to the point you raised earlier about regulators, Peter, uh, one of the areas that needs to be improved upon, and I cover this in, uh, in the book to some degree, yeah. is monitoring of professionals, that is monitoring not just of the banks themselves, the monitoring of the professionals. Hang goes some way towards that in recommendations related to the registration of financial services professionals, but there's more work that needs to be done. Now, Tom, where is this book going to be available? Okay, there's a range of areas where people are able to get hold of it. It is in some bookstores around the place, but People who want to get hold of it quickly, they're able to get it from the publisher's website, bookinsandpublishing.com.au, Booktopia, and similar book websites if they don't want to go crawling through bookstores yep. or placing an order. So it's the quickest way to get it. Okay, Tom. So the book is called Vulture City, How Our Bankers Got Rich on Swindles. Tom Ravlick, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure, Peter. What's the program for today, Paul? Did you feel in any way guilty when he was talking about swindles in the bank? Because when you were there, banks were honest, weren't they? Banks were honest, Peter. They just sailed right over the top of me. But um, look, I'm sure there's some great stuff in the the book. And uh, look, uh, there are some things he mentioned earlier which I relate to, and and I think it's probably all of us just to uh, stay on top of some of the behaviour. Let's hope the behaviour is changing. We we need the regulators to Mm. get on top of their game. They need to get the right people uh, and the industry to respond in a positive way. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that's in the interest long term of shareholders too. Yeah, Peter. and just in case I've created the wrong impression about you, Paul, I should explain to our, our listeners that Paul did, you know, he was the first CEO of Comsec, which actually delivered 
stockbroking services to, to at, the masses, to the masses yep. at very low prices. You've had a material impact on many households right across Australia. Not as much as John Simon, I, but still, I, you've done a I've really a good job. Material impact on your wealth, Peter. <laughs> well, in two ways. In two ways. A, you took it away when Comsec was doing free ads on TV and radio, but then when you came into the business, you got even. Well done, you, Paul. Well, That's well, a show. For another day, I think, that one. <laughs> Thank you.